Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Phil Boogie. Uh, welcome to another episode of Isolation Be Like. Um, my birthday was last night. Uh, we had a, a nice stay-at-home celebration, a homemade cake, um, some singing, and some leftover Spider-Man and rainbow and unicorn uh, decorations and toys and favors from my kids' birthdays um, from earlier this year. Um, and we had a good time. So... Full disclosure, I tried to record last night, but it is hard for me to record in the house when it's super quiet because I feel like I'm uh, being listened to, which is awkward because I'm recording a podcast for other people to listen. So uh, I scrapped it. I'm going to try it over again. I'm in the car slash my studio. I'm in a driveway. It is breezy. The birds are chirping. Um, You might hear some of them. Uh, But uh, today I'm going to do something different. I'm going to read a piece that I wrote some years ago that ended up getting uh, published in uh, an anthology called For Colored Boys Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Still Not Enough. Um, it was edited by Keith Boykin. Um, I don't know why it came to me yesterday to read this piece, but I'm going to give it a go. Uh, maybe it's a good test run for one day when I'm reading uh, my book um, for Audible that all of you are will download and and buy the hard copy and paperback for someday soon. So I'm going to read a little piece of the essay um, and then um, talk a little bit. But um, just as setup, since I'm not starting from the beginning, um, I wrote this piece about a time um, in my life when I had uh, moved to L.A. Um, I had been in L.A. for a couple of months right out of graduation. I was at the time uh, 21 um, and living on my own for the first time and uh, had moved to L.A. to, to, to follow my dream. So just going to start reading. This is weird, but I'm going to want to go. All right. Here goes. <laughs> I moved out here to be the next Spike Lee, but somehow I ended up answering phones at Levine Schneider Public Relations instead. I was alone and didn't want to be. I was poor and didn't want to be that either. I was gay and didn't know how to be. On top of all of that, I was going to miss Christmas back at home in New Jersey. I think missing Christmas bothered me most of all. I love Christmas. My family wasn't especially religious. For us, Christmas was all about the gifts and spending time with each other. As kids, my brother and I got everything we wanted. We'd open gifts then hop into a cab over to my grandmother's house where we opened more gifts. It was always a magical time. Well, except for the one Christmas where my dad left to get a Christmas tree and didn't come back until well after Christmas. My first Christmas in L.A. was magical, too, in a black magic sort of way. I thought I wanted to kill myself, but I took a passive-aggressive approach to ending it all. I didn't have insurance, so there was no prescription pills for me to take. I was late with rent and considered jumping from my 10th floor Park La Brea apartment window, but that was too dramatic, even for me. At some point during my downward spiral, I realized that I didn't want to kill myself. I really just wanted to punish myself for not having the life I was supposed to have. I'd imagine I'd be engaged to my high school sweetheart, Dana. We had it all planned out. We were going to have three kids, two girls and a boy, Ebony, Essence, and Elijah. 
I don't know why we went with names that began with E. I'm sure there was some reason that seemed profound in our teenage minds. Instead of engagements and kids, however, I found myself trying to face a life that was completely unrecognizable. That first Christmas in LA was unlike anything I'd, I'd experienced. No snow, no Yule log, no presents. People were wearing shorts for God's sake. What kind of Christmas is that? Since I decided against suicide, I went to the movies instead. I remember wearing a turtleneck and brown corduroy pants. I thought maybe it would make, it would make me feel like I was home if I dressed in winter clothes despite the warm temperatures outside. I ended up seeing Dumb and Dumber. That choice didn't make things much better. On the way home, feeling completely lost, I picked up Frontiers. When I got back to my apartment, I locked myself in the bedroom. I didn't want one of my roommates to see what I was reading. I sat on the floor of my bare room and flipped to the back of the magazine. I've always gone to the back of the magazine first, it's a habit I developed reading Jet magazine. Jet printed a list of the top 20 songs and albums in the back of the magazine. I've always liked lists. I would read the top 20 lists first and then work my way back to the beginning of the magazine. Frontiers had ads for everything under the sun. Now, I had seen personal ads in mainstream newspapers before. Man seeks woman for walks on the beach and romantic dinners. But Frontiers was no walk on the beach. Hot guy in West Hollywood with hot mouth looking to take big meat all day and night, anonymous only. Those were the kind of ads I saw in Frontiers. I was disgusted by the vulgar ads and seemingly classless nature of the people who posted them. But I kept reading. And then I found him. He was tall, swimmer's build, and like the Simpsons. He was BLK and a BTM into FF and WS and K. I didn't know what those acronyms meant, but I figured it couldn't be so bad. I called him. Come over, he said. He lived in Norwalk. It's 10 o'clock, I said. I'll pay for a cab and I won't try anything. I just don't want to be alone on Christmas, he said back. I didn't either. I showered, got dressed, left a note with his address and phone number on my bed under my pillow. Even in my reckless abandon of meeting my faceless, nameless Norwalk date, I tried to be responsible. I wrote, if I am missing, I am in Norwalk at this address. I sprayed on some cologne and went downstairs into the waiting cab. Fearing getting murdered, by an anonymous man in a town I was unfamiliar with is how I began my dating life. I knew it was dangerous, but part of me felt like I deserved whatever might happen. This was my lot for being this way. I may have well been driving across the country. I had never been on any of these freeways, the five, the 110. It wasn't even until I realized that I'd been riding for about a half hour that I began to think that the driver may have been going the wrong way. He had gone too far. I began making a list of, in my head. People who will miss me if something happens. Mom, my brother, 
Nana, Dina, Shakira, Brian, Rudy, Larice. The list went on. It went from being a list of people who love me to being the list of people who come to my funeral. I wonder who would take the trip to New Jersey for the services. I wondered if people would be disappointed by how I had died and if they did not show up. I started to wonder if my roommates would find the note. What if no one found my body? I wanted to tell the cab driver to turn around, but the meter was already up to $50 and I didn't have 50 cents. I had to go the distance, if not for anything, but the cab fare. I was already in too deep. About 40 minutes in, I arrived in this foreign land of Norwalk, California, and a tall, cute, lanky black man met me at the curb. The cab driver asked for $85. The stranger paid the cab driver, looked at me and said, you better be worth it. Without any other prompt, he turned around and started walking toward his open apartment door. It had to have been only seconds, but it felt like an hour as I watched him walk across the street back into his place. My legs were cement. I didn't move from the side of the cab. A piece of me, the piece that still kind of liked me, mustered up enough strength to lean into the cab driver's window and say, please come back at 6 a.m. The cab driver, an older Russian man, stared at me for a beat and gave me a slight nod before he drove off. As his car pulled away, I felt shipwrecked. All I had was a pager. No one would even think to look for me in Norwalk, and they certainly wouldn't be looking for me at some man's house. For the first time in my life, I felt completely isolated. So I wrote this piece um, some years after um, the situation had happened and um, and some of you have read this story. Some of you have heard me read this story at events. Um, but it's about a time when I was uh, still struggling with just being myself in a way that um, I can still remember um, um, deeply, um, even though my life has changed um, since that time. Um, and sometimes I feel sad for that person and wonder how that person made it through uh, to this point. But I remember that that Christmas um, living in Los Angeles, um, you know, I was broke. Um, I had, um, you know, not been able to do the things that I wanted to do. And, you know, when you're young, you think things are going to happen quickly and you move to L.A. and you get discovered and everything's going to be OK. Um, but at the time I was working for a PR firm. Um, I was the front office manager, um, which essentially I was the receptionist. Um, there was this uh, sort of smoke and mirrors uh, perception that they gave us that we were training to become publicists. But really, we were answering the phones. And the whole idea of the training was to not make us feel as bad about making um, four cents a day um, when we were college educated and capable of earning more and doing more. Um, but we were new to LA, the people my age and working in those positions and we just did what we had to do. But it was hard living in the city with no money 
And it was hard not not only not being able to be myself, but not really knowing what or or who that self was at the time. But even not knowing, having this tremendous fear of what uh, was waiting for me on the other side uh, when I finally you know faced who I was. And it wasn't just about rejection from my family and rejection from friends, because those things weighed heavily on me. But it was also this idea of of erasure. Like, what happens when I go over there? Like, do I disappear? Do I disappear from the life that I know? Um, I was afraid of um, um, HIV, right? You know, at the time that we were in, in just coming off of um, a very heightened um, sort of fear um, of the virus where, you know, everything associated with being gay was immediately attached, attached to some kind of pain, right? Emotional, physical, or, um, you know, sickness. And I just didn't know, um, what was waiting for me. So I was, I was frightened. And like a lot of people at the time, um, I found ways to try to find connection in dark corners, right? Where people wouldn't, um, know who I was when I, where I could, if I wanted to turn away and still be the feel that I had created. Um, and that, that took a lot of work, um, to do. So that Christmas, um, I really wanted to be home. I couldn't go home. I didn't have the money. I didn't feel comfortable asking for the money. I had made the choice to live across the country on my own. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be a grown up. And then I found myself in Los Angeles um, feeling isolated um, and uncertain about how to connect. Now, one of the great things is that one of my best friends also lived in Los Angeles that I had grown up with. Um, but he did not know that I was gay, had not had not shared that um, with him. Um, he had been out pretty much most of our lives, uh, but he was an outlier. He was somebody who um, who kind of took the lumps, you know, even as a as a teenager, young teenager. He took the lumps and got teased. And um, but he was a strong dude and was able to fight for himself. But um, he had it rough. Right. You know, if we were to talk about it now, we do sometimes like, you know, he could handle his business, but it was a lot to um, to constantly have to fight and kind of protect yourself just to exist in the day. And I didn't I didn't want any part of that. So that Christmas um, needing some sort of attention, some sort of affection, feeling isolated, um, you know, I went to the movies um, with my um best friend and then he went home and then I went home um and unbeknownst to him or anyone else I found myself um looking um through this magazine that I had picked up called Frontiers which is a magazine like a free publication you would find in West Hollywood and other gay neighborhoods um and it would have uh you know, entertainment stories and um, profiles on important people in the community and listings for events and then also classified ads. So, you know, at the time, there was no app or website to go cruising. You had to do it the old-fashioned way and um, go out and meet people or literally look in the back of a magazine and read ads and call in 
to exchange messages with someone until until you exchange phone numbers. And that's what I did. And I met this guy who I call Chicago because I don't remember his name. Um, and um, but he said he was from Chicago. Fun fact, I was watching a movie some years later, minding my business. Um, and I see him in a film. I'm almost 95% sure it was him. And um, he popped up on the screen, sort of an extra, like, minor thing. And I just tensed up. Um, you know, that's the funny thing about L.A. is, like, everybody's in the business. <laughs> so you never know where you're going to see them again. That isn't the... Um, the last time that something like that has happened where somebody pops up in the middle of me watching a TV show or a movie. Um, so I go to this guy's house that I don't know. I know it's wrong. I know it's frightening, but I just need to be with somebody who I didn't feel. Um, I just needed to be um, that part of myself and have that attention and have that affection um, and not feel judged for it. And it feels crazy now looking back that I was willing to get that at the expense of possibly getting killed, right? Right? Or hurt. Um, that's how desperate I was. That's how, that's how hard it is for, um, for us sometimes. You know, it's better now, but not for everybody. And certainly not back then. And I was living this dual life, right? I had gone to college and been popular and had been um, well-liked and pledged and did all the things. Um, and I was also struggling the whole time, not because I hated myself, but because it was like I knew that I had to perform a certain, a certain version of myself to maintain what I had established all those years in college. And that burden was starting to like wear on me and I just wanted to be free of that, which is part of the reason why I just packed up and moved to LA the minute I could um, after I had graduated. So I go to this man's house. Um, I know it's wrong. Um, I, I get to his house and I'm afraid. I get out of the cab because I have to. I don't have any money really. I'm broke. He pays 85 bucks for this cab and then I go into this person's apartment that nobody knows, that I don't know. No one knows where I am. And he locks the door behind me with the key, takes the key out, and puts it in his pocket. So I am now locked in this, um, in this man's apartment. And what ensued, and I won't go into the whole story. Um, again, it's in the anthology um, for colored boys who have considered suicide by Keith Boykin. And, and I also have it in um, my book, I believe. But I was assaulted. And for years, um, I didn't see it as assault. Like, I think I said in the excerpt that in some ways that I thought that whatever happened to me, I deserved it. I knew better than to go to somebody's house, right? It was almost like I was trying to self-mutilate. Um, maybe in the back of my mind, I thought if something happened to me that was bad, that I would never do this again, that maybe I would never be with a man again. I don't know. Um, but I was in that much pain um, that at that point in my life, almost every um, 
contact I had with a man um, that was uh, of a sexual nature or, you know, about attraction in any kind of way was one where there was danger involved. Um, it was almost like I was trying to hurt myself. I was punishing myself. And most times I was fine. You know, it was maybe an awkward date or somebody who I would never have spent time with in, in, in any other context. And I was able to get out of it pretty easily. But this time I was not. Um, and I was lucky to make it out physically okay. Um, and for years I, you know, I solely blame myself because I still, and I know this is not a popular opinion, I still despite what I was feeling, despite my fears, I still take responsibility for getting into my getting into that cab, going that far. Because um, I had the presence of mind to leave a note under the under the pillow to say, hey, if, if, if I don't come back home, you can find me here. Um, all that is pain and all that is, but I got in the cab. So I, I, I take responsibility for that. And, but now, um, I also am able to place responsibility on the person who uh, who harmed me. Um, that that my getting in the cab, that my coming to their house, did not um, give them the right to um, to trap me in their in their home and to and, and to <clears throat> excuse me and to harm me. The person who showed up to that guy's house, to Chicago's house, um, never believed that life was ever going to get better. The person who was um, on AOL and wherever looking for people never thought life could be better. Um, Even though there were glimmers, right? You know, around this same time, I decided to come out to my friends. And I started with um, two of my best friends first, the one who lived in uh, Los Angeles, um, Brian. I told him, and he had known me since I was 12. His response was, at first, he didn't believe me. We had been together so much all these years, and I knew he was gay. So at first, it was like disbelief, and then he was irritated because we could have been kicking the whole entire time we had been friends. And I was, you know, I was playing. Like, I was acting like I wasn't. Um, so, you know, we had a good laugh about that uh, because he was upset in some ways that we our friendship could have even been deeper than what it was. And he, you know, but he understood because I was a different, I was a different guy. You know, I was, I was mainstream, right? So I maintained that appearance. Um, so then we told our, the third person in our triangle, um, my best friend, Rudy. And when we told Rudy, Brian was on the phone. Um, I was on the phone in my apartment. We called on a three-way call and Rudy was living back East and Rudy actually got upset, like mad upset. Not like, bitch, you could have been told me it was upset because Rudy thought that, um, Maybe I was saying it to him, trying to fish information from him about his sexuality. Um, And I wasn't. And um, eventually he believed it. And um, 
And we had a long conversation about our friendship and relationships. And we discovered that over all these years that we have been friends from the time we were about, I was, I think I was 12 when I met them. Oh, I was, yeah, I was about 12, 11, 12 when I met them. That even with us being as close as we were, we weren't really sharing all of ourselves with each other. We were afraid of each other. And we spent a lot of time together. That's how deep this thing is, that you're afraid of your own friends. You're the friends who the friends who you think might understand you, you're still afraid because you don't want to be found out until you're ready to tell people. So you gotta it's just it's just really sad. Um and it's 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 so unsafe um to feel that isolated, to feel that afraid to share because so much can happen to you and then you have no one to tell it to that has been my experience because you figured that whatever happened to you whatever pain you're suffering um, is probably easier to deal with than facing the rejection um, from people who you love right I have since grown from that um, and I see the world much differently but I guess you only get there if you if you learn and have those experiences. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking to students about um, who come to me and talk about some of the struggles they're having. Just like, you know, let's think about how love operates. If if you have to be afraid of the person, then um, that, that is not love. So trust them until, until you have a reason not to and share who you are. Um, and more you know, more often than not, it's not as bad as you might think. And maybe it's even good. Um, but that guy, that Phil in 1994, um, had already decided that he didn't have a chance. And then that was reaffirmed, um, by, you know, what you see on TV, what you hear people say. Um, I remember going to homecoming, um, about a year after I decided to come out to a handful of friends. Um, I went back to Hampton for homecoming. And because I was popular, um, I only told a handful of people, people who I was really close to. But by the time I got back to homecoming, because of who I was, it had made its way through the grapevine. So everybody knew and had an opinion. And um, I had heard some things that people had said about me, people who I love deeply people who I'm just now repairing relationships with in the last couple of years. Um, so, um, I heard things, you know, like <laughs> I hear Phil's a hairdresser now and, you know, lives with like four dudes and they're all in a relationship together. And, um, one of my best friends, um, told several people, um, at the time, we're not best friends now, told people to stay away from me specifically, um, um, you know, I'm not going to go into all of that, but it was bad. So I show up for homecoming and no one speaks. I go hang out where some people who I knew would be and no one is speaking. I'm not being acknowledged. These are specifically some male friends that I had. No one's talking. And then one person kind of acknowledges me with a nod. Now, mind you, I've been gone. I ain't seen nobody. And then one person kind of walks up kind of awkwardly and says, so how's that thing going? 
it was just the strangest. It was just strange. And I just walked away. No one said goodbye. No one acknowledged. And I remember that being the moment where I made my complete separation um, for years from people of that part of my life. Unless you were somebody who I really, 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 really loved and could trust. I didn't. I made no efforts. And, um, and, and if you weren't making an effort, then that part of my life was over. And I think I grew up that that weekend and realized that I had to take care of myself in a different way if I was going to survive just trying to grow and be. And I watched people get married without getting an invitation to weddings to people who I loved. I watched um, people come and travel to Los Angeles and do all kinds of things and not pick up the phone. Um, You know, homecomings where people didn't utter a word. Some people didn't utter a word to me. Um, And I knew why. All the while still being Phil, who was popular, who people expected something from. I planned planned the class reunions, all that kind of stuff. And barely barely want to even be there um and in the midst of that there's always some bright light people who who show love regardless um but it was hard you know so I think in part why I'm thinking about this today on today (laughs) is that last night was my birthday yesterday was my birthday and I woke up in my house um which I like. And I went out, uh, went downstairs, and my my kids... Actually, I, I didn't even make it downstairs. My kids woke up at 3.15 in the morning because they were so excited for my birthday and the cake. So I had to put them back in bed. And then they woke up early again because they were excited to give me hugs and to sing happy birthday. We did that. They sang happy birthday 15 times. We played. We had a good time. They helped frost a cake um, that my husband had made. Um, I went outside and cut some flowers from the from the garden, put them on the table, and we we ate cake for dinner, and then had <laughs> dinner afterwards, real dinner afterwards, and just had a good time. Just love, right? This life that I have now, which sometimes I take for granted because it's just your life. So I wake up and I'm tired, and I. I want to do other things and I just need to write or I need to think or I just need whatever it is. Can I go to the bathroom without someone knocking on the door? Can someone not need me for a minute? All that stuff. All the things that everyone feels when you live with people, when you have family, you just need a minute or um, you're overwhelmed by just whatever it is, the schedule, whatever it is. Um, There's certainly that. But what I felt yesterday was, was this deep deep, deep sense of what it feels like to be loved from a very real place and in a way that I didn't think that I would ever get. Um, And I'm grateful for that. Um, 21-year-old Phil, Phil, 16-year-old Phil, um, shit, 30-year-old Phil didn't believe that was possible and it's not perfect nothing's perfect this we are working for this we all we work hard to make this life but i know that it's real um and i just i just thought about this story 
about the person who who showed up thinking he might be hurt, maybe killed, but but went to this man's house anyway because I I without consciously knowing this didn't have a feeling that my life was worth anything because that wasn't mirrored back to me um, by anyone. Um, and I felt loved and I was, people liked me, but they liked the part of me that I showed. And some might argue that, well, maybe you should have tried to show other parts, but there's also that other thing where I think people knew, right? I think my father knew, um, rest in peace. I think my father knew early on, um, but he let me know without directing it towards me who I was supposed to be to be his son. And I never felt adequate, at least not as a as a child for him. Um, and that has always um, that always weighed heavily over me until we were able to reconcile um, as adults as when I became an adult. Um, but here I am sitting in my driveway looking at the birds in the bird feeder and my my flowers growing and my kids in the house waiting for me to come back inside. Um, and I'm here. Um, it's still work. I'm still looking for certain parts of myself um, as we all are every day. But this is good. Right? So... I know there are a lot of people listening who have been through this. And there are some people who, a lot of people who know me have no idea that I struggled as much as I struggled um, and that I've been hurt. I, 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 there are people listening to this right now. I know they are. People who have hurt me um, deeply who have no idea that they've done it because we're friends and we. I smiled through it when I was a teenager. And I, I let it happen because I didn't know. I didn't know the words. And then we became adults and people get better as people. There's no reason to apologize. It's water under the bridge. I can't even remember the specific incidents, but it's a lot. Even even my being popular during my college years was a response to the fear I had of, um, of being found out, of being hurt. And I, I overcompensated and, and being this sort of outwardly sort of connected person to people when in when in truth anybody who knows me now a little bit knows that I, I've never been that person I like to be by myself I like my private space um but I became a thing that kept me safe um and a lot of that is tied to that fear of of being rejected so last night today I wake up um feeling whole and feeling loved and feeling really grateful that I didn't actually kill myself. Um, that I didn't succeed, even if it were passive, putting myself in harm's way, that I was able to survive to see the other side. And I'm grateful. So that's my birthday testimony. Um, I'm here. Um, and also in, in reading that piece um, yesterday, because I read it first, 
And I stopped at the part where I say I felt completely isolated. And I was struck by that, considering the name of this podcast is Isolation Be Like. And what is becoming clearer, clearer and clearer to me as I do this podcast, which I'm doing on a whim, I had not intended to create a podcast, is about how much of my life is centered around feeling alone. Um, and, and putting that into context. And creatively, that's been a good thing for me as a, as a healing. Is that's also been good for me, um, but I don't feel I don't feel alone, which is nice. And I also don't feel that my identity has anything to do with anybody else. I get to be myself. So if you're listening and you're struggling with that, um, I'm here. I've been through it, and a lot of us have been through it. There's something waiting on the other side of it. And whatever it is for you that you're um, that you're not letting people know um, that you're struggling with, other people are, are going through it too. You just got to hang in there. All right? So I'll catch you next time um, on Isolation Be Like. Thanks for listening. Um, I appreciate you. Stay safe. Um, stay sane. Wash your hands. Um, stay in the house. I'm not even going to go into that, but stay in the house if you, if you don't have to be out. Still, I don't care what's open. Stay in the house. I love you. I'll talk to you later. Peace.